News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The app is not the only solution. It's one component of multifaceted type of, uh, you know, approach mm-hmm. to this whole problem. That is private cybersecurity investigator Denny Gagnon talking to us about the government's contact tracing app. So right now, you can go to an app store on your phone and download the Canadian government's COVID alert app. But there's a catch. BC residents right now can't yet report positive cases. And we are not the only ones. The rollout of this app has been kind of sporadic. It has been slow. So Global News reporter Heather Urex-West has been investigating, and she joins us this morning to explain more about that. Heather, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. What is the deal with this? Why is this taking so long? Yeah, so this is very much a jurisdictional issue. So this is an app, as you mentioned, it was developed by Ottawa, the federal government, but they don't have jurisdiction. They can't force the provinces to adopt it. It is ultimately up to the provinces to decide whether or not they want to be a part of this project. And so far, we have only seen four provinces actually launch the app, uh, which those provinces are Ontario, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland and Labrador, and New Brunswick. Now, recently, we've heard Quebec, who was initially very much against participating in this app, um, kind of making an about face. They now say that they're on board and, and hope to launch the app very soon. And we've also heard from Manitoba that they're hoping to launch the app as early as next week. But notable holdouts are the provinces out west, Alberta, where I am, and of course, BC, where you are. There are um, There's still in the midst of negotiations, we've heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry say that they're still negotiating with a federal team about, you know, changes that they would like to see made. And it's very much the same situation in Alberta. Uh, the two Western provinces just don't feel at this point that the federal app meets all of their needs. Um, doesn't kind of check all the boxes with what they would like to see this app bring to the table. It just seems like it's dragging on forever because by the time, you know, they get it perfect, this we're not going to need it as much. Yeah, I mean, the, the timing right now is pretty critical, and that's why I, I spoke with a few experts, and that, that's why they suspect Quebec kind of turned around, because they are in the midst of the second wave. They're being hit harder than any place else in the country, and, you know, this isn't, um, it's not a contact tracing app, it's called an exposure notification app, but it works best in those situations where people are, you know, around strangers, and they can't really, you know, in their mind, be able to tell a contact tracer who all they came into contact with, so especially among kind of younger groups of people or or people that are sort of going from place to place and and coming across a lot of people that they don't necessarily know. This is where this app, this notification app, can be very, very useful. So, yeah, the timing is is really critical, and and we don't want to be wasting too much time, especially as we see cases rise right across the country, not just out Quebec and Ontario. Of course, we're seeing um, higher numbers in BC and Alberta as well. Yeah, just about everywhere. What do we know, Heather, about when BC residents maybe can expect to get fully onto this app? Yeah, that's really up to the the BC government. So the last sort of update I heard was from um, Dr. Bonnie Henry late last week. And she, that's when she was saying that, you know, the, the discussions are ongoing and that um, there have been a lot of discussions. So uh, we'll see about that. But Alberta's very much in the same boat. 
So we don't have a quick timeline. I suspect we're going to see other provinces come online before and we'll likely see BC and Alberta come online um, last. I think with Alberta, they put so much money into an app of their own. They don't really want to be kind of starting from scratch. Um, uh, I think that there's some other issues at play. And I just want to kind of uh, do a little shout out to a colleague of mine, Brian Hill, Global News Online, who's been doing kind of a deeper dive investigation. And you mm-hmm. can read um, his investigation online today. And he's got a little bit more details about what's kind of happening behind the scenes but that's sort of what I suspect and I I think that really BC and Alberta will probably be the last to come online on this app. All right we'll see. Heather thank you. Thank you. That's Heather Urex West, a Global National Alberta correspondent, talking about the COVID-19 app that has been released by the Canadian government. It's called the COVID Alert app. Uh, still not fully functional in BC and Alberta. Uh, and people are wondering, like, why is that? It's been around for months now. We've heard that it's good. It does a good job of protecting privacy. So why... Why are BC health officials still kind of hesitating to get on board with this? There's still so many questions with that. Well, we know that young people are more likely to work in industries that are getting particularly hard hit by pandemic unemployment right now. So what are the options for people in that age group? Well, that's what we thought we would talk about today. There are jobs out there, but where are they? And how do you connect people to them? Well, our guest is Tim Lang, the CEO of Youth Employment Services. This is an organization that tries to help connect young people with jobs and training opportunities. They're actually partnering with Gastown Vocational Services to offer a career accelerator program. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Good to be here. What is a career accelerator program? What does that mean? Well, it's it's a program which is evidence-based, so a lot of research went into this, but with disruption in the economy with uh, AI and an aging workforce and change that's fasting more than ever, and this is even pre-COVID, uh, this uh, course, the Career Accelerator, which is funded by HSBC and the, and the ES Youth Employment Services, is the, is the lead in Canada, um, really uh, engages youth to understand the changes that are coming to prepare them and make sure that they are prepared. So it includes, obviously, uh, some pre-employment training of typical things like communication skills, teamwork. But it gets into some areas that are so important in the future, like resiliency, adaptability, digital literacy training, um, and and so much more. And it's a free program, um, so it really uh, helps change their lives and, and prepare them for the things ahead. Right. Is there such a thing as kind of being able to pandemic-proof your skills? There is, and, you know, and, and that's a good way of putting it. That's how I say it, you know, pandemic-proof jobs. As you had said, so many jobs that especially young people who are starting out depend on in the hospitality or retail sector have been, to some extent, wiped out. Um, so we've been looking and working hard with organizations that are pandemic-proof, especially in the digital literacy area, but also the trades is a, is a an area that offers great long-term careers that have not been affected by the pandemic. And in fact, Amazon Web Services, for example, just announced thousands of new jobs uh, in the Vancouver area. And so this kind of area and and the opportunity uh, during COVID to upskill and retrain is one that you should take advantage of uh, right now. Do you think, Tim, part of the problem is that people who are unemployed, they see those jobs or they hear that in the news and they think, oh, well, I'm I'm not qualified for that. That doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and it, yes, Youth Employment Services, I mean, we train tens of thousands uh, of youth a year with a close to 90% success rate. And through our, our partners like, uh, you know, like uh, Gastown Vocational Services or, or others, Red Fox, whoever, um, you know, we help uh, train them in different areas. Um, but our organization offers a cloud computing course, for example, 
And the good news is, and there's other, others out there, so I urge youth to talk to their local service providers um, you know, across the province because uh, not all of them offer it, but sometimes there are free services that can offer cloud computing. And you don't need, to your point, you do not need any um, pre-requirements a lot of the times. You can take these, sometimes, you know, they're an eight-week course. Sometimes they are paid, but sometimes, the, like the ones Yes offers, are free. And you come out of it with certification that will allow you to get into these jobs, either at Amazon Web Services or Microsoft, Azure, or, you know, a number of other places uh, that are, again, pandemic-proof. Interesting then, too. So how much room do you have for people? How much room in, in the courses do you yeah, mean? Yeah, like how many people can sign up for this? Yeah, and, that's, and that is obviously the, the more difficult one. I mean, we'd love to take thousands of yes. people instantly, but, but as you can imagine, because it is still, even though it's virtual right now, uh, sort of a classroom-based uh, instructor-led course, um, it's usually only, you know, 30 at a time, but we've got several going on at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's hundreds. But that's just youth employment services. Other, that's why I say that you know you should seek other opportunities out there because there can be, or and there are other places where you can access um, these opportunities. Right. Um, and 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 that's cloud computing, which is a very good area. But in digital literacy in general, uh, can really enhance. You can get these what they call digital literacy bad, you know, badges, what mm-hmm. they call them, which you can add to your resume. Um, so they're they're out there, and I know a lot of youth just don't know about these things. So that's why even this to me, even you doing this is so helpful just to alert people uh, of opportunities. I think it's hard, though, as we were talking about, for people to change that mindset, right? Like, it's hard to look at this as an opportunity, I think, for people, given the way the economy is right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, and that's why even in this, in that um, Gastown Vocational Services, for example, or yes, you can do it, the, the yes version online, because uh, we have it all online and it's free, the the career accelerator program that helps change that mindset. And that's a big part of it. A big part of even in normal times, young people come out and it's, it's always tough times. The the unemployment rate is typically double the national average for young people. And part of the challenge is to change that mindset to to say, yeah, it takes resiliency. It takes, you know, persistence. Don't give up uh, because you will find something as as you may get knocked down, but you got to get back up. So that's exactly part of it. So then, Tim, just to sum up for people, what kind of skills should they be thinking of? What kind of skills would help them get through this? It's, uh, again, I, I, one of the things that people can do is go to services like, yes, uh, Youth Employment Services or, or Gastown Vocational Services or YMCA. There's Red Fox. There's so many um, to uncover because there are still thousands of jobs out there. So, I mean, everyone's a bit different. Everyone has different interests. But to uncover what areas they're interested in and and then, you know, and seek those opportunities because they are out there. And again, anything digital is, is, is a good opportunity. But again, there's in the trades, there are still sales yeah. roles, account executive roles, there's still office, office work. Um, so really upskilling in so many areas can lead to long-term, not just employment, but even careers. All right. So then, Tim, is, what website, where can they go to get more information? Um, they can go to yes.on.ca. And there's a number of uh, free resources. It's all, all free. So the Career Accelerator uh, program can help them. Or, again, go to Gastown Vocational Services if you're right in, 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 in Vancouver. Or look into some of the employment services, you know, if you're in northern BC, anywhere, because they're, they're really scattered across the province. All right. Thanks so much for the advice this morning. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Amy.
That is Tim Lang with Youth Employment Services. He is the CEO there. So yeah, Google Youth Employment Services for whatever community you are in. Uh, they're you know really taking this as an opportunity for the younger demographics that are out of work to kind of brush up on their skills, make them more pandemic proof, as they say, and help them land some jobs, perhaps a new career even. All right, let's say good morning to Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. She has an idea for you if you're a little tired of working from home. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, I don't need to take advantage of this service because, well, I I live alone. I mean, I got my two dogs, but otherwise, uh, you know, I live alone, so it's not an issue for me. But I think this is something that certainly people who have kids at home, who have a spouse at home, might want to consider, and that is renting out a hotel room and using that as an office instead. I know what you're thinking. That sounds really expensive. It's not going to be cheap, (laughs) but Hotel Belmont, which is right downtown in Vancouver, right on the Granville Strip, they have decided they're going to take advantage of this idea and start marketing their hotel rooms for day use to people who want to use them as an office instead. So they said that a room will cost somewhere from 95 bucks to $125 and you get it for a 12-hour period. So again, you know, you're looking around 100 bucks. It's not cheap, but if you are so sick of working from home and those constant interruptions from the other people in your household, then maybe this is not a bad idea for you. You know, I felt this yesterday for sure, because I'm used to it normally being quite quiet at home. But yesterday, for some reason, everybody was home. And I was trying to have a meeting like online on FaceTime and people walking in and out and saying, and I thought, boy, this, I I felt for people working from home because I'm not normally, but just this one meeting trying to have it from home with all these people walking around. I thought, boy, this can get so stressful. No, I know exactly what you mean. I was working from my parents' house last week and I was helping to take care of my grandfather who was staying with us, which was excellent. However, I was doing a Zoom Zoom call so everybody can see what's happening in the background of your screen, of course. And someone, as they were getting ready for dinner, walked through the back of the screen holding a a big bottle of rum. (laughs) No! Well, it's the Reitmeyer house, right? (laughs) Well, this is it. They're getting a rare glimpse into what really happens inside the Reitmeyer household. (laughs) That is too funny. funny seeing that. Oh my goodness. And how many times have we seen that online now? where you know somebody walks through the background of a Zoom call wearing you know nothing but their underwear or something holding a cup of coffee while their spouse is on that meeting. The irony is so rich. Do you remember a couple of years ago, the video of the gentleman, I think he was overseas and he was the specialist on North and South Korea. Yes. And then he was talking, yes. it, was a, it was a BBC interview he was doing and then the door opened and his kids came kind of walking in, that little girl with that great walk <laughs> that she had, just like walking. And we all just loved it. We felt for it, except now it's happening every day to so many people. Exactly. I remember that video so vividly because you see the nanny come flying through the door and she's trying to pull the kids back again. And I mean, it was just hilarious is what it was. And at the time, you know, we we're laughing with that guy. We you know it, it was quite funny. It was, it was quite fantastic. For everybody involved. It was fantastic. But, but like you said, now we're all living we are that all and that it's person. not so funny anymore. <laughs> Now we're like, yeah, it was funny the first time that happened. Not funny now every single time it keeps happening. Yeah, it was funny when it happened to someone else. 
But now the other aspect of this too is if you have noisy neighbors. And hey, before if you had neighbors that were just noisy because of who they are, or maybe they were doing some construction to their home, getting a new roof, something like that. Well, you could go to the office for the day. And by the time you came home, well, maybe those roofing crews would be almost done for the evening and it wouldn't be such a big deal. But now, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock, you find yourself again stuck in some kind of Zoom call, some kind of meeting, and you can hear bang, 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 bang all day long, driving you absolutely bonkers. And it's the neighbors. So what do you do, right? It's not like someone in your household where you can go, can you please be quiet? Now, you know, you got to be a little more careful when you're dealing with the neighbors, of course. That is so true. I've I've wondered that myself, like construction noise, yard work, like you hear a lot of lawn mowing going on and, and you want to be like, hey, I'm working here. And then you realize, oh, well, yeah, of course, this is during the day when all this stuff normally gets done. What are we supposed when to do? When they're working too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you done working from home, Nikki? Like, how do you feel about it right now? Uh, no, I still like it. Um, I have a, a decent little setup here, so I, I don't really mind. And, and by a decent little setup, I mean, I'm literally broadcasting in my bed right now holding this microphone. So it works for me. <laughs> I don't mind it. I'm still enjoying it. And I'm enjoying the flexibility that it brings as well. Right. I know some other people say that they are getting fed up. They're getting sick of it. I was actually reading a really interesting article today, even about sick days and how sick days will work moving forward. Because, you know, they're saying, of course, if you're feeling ill, don't go into the office. I think that's something that we've all accepted now. It's a cultural shift that we've had to make. Whereas before, you know, we thought it was a part of good work ethic to go into the office. And now we're changing our views on that. But if we're working from home, what do you do when it comes to a sick, sick days? Day. And when like, you're are you really Ill. sick? Are you away from the computer? Or are you going to check in? And if you're checking in, then is that really a sick day? Exactly. They're saying, you know, it's not a bad thing to take that sick day, put down the laptop for the day yes. and just get a bit of rest. But of course, if you're, you know, if you're sick at home, there's going to be this, even if it's not an, an overt expectation that you will be at least able to check your emails. Oh, can't you get just check that email? Can't you take a phone call? So it'll be interesting to see if sick days for people who work from home moving forward are actually days when people can get some rest or if there's going to be a cultural expectation that they keep working through those days as well. Good point. Nikki, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. All right, coming up next, we're going to be checking in with Richard Zussman and what's going on on the campaign trail. You know, a lot of business owners have been making some difficult decisions in recent days, and that is because the commercial rent relief program ended yesterday officially, and now a lot of those business owners are once again on the hook for the full amount of their rent. So obviously, if it's a company that is still coping with a huge reduction in revenue, this could be it for them. Those are the kinds of difficult decisions that are going to be made over the next little while. Joining us now is the Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Laura Jones. Laura, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having CFIB on the show. How concerned is CFIB at this point? Like, What are you hearing from businesses? We're very concerned. Um, we've got a, a dashboard that we're following on uh, small business recovery based on the surveys that we're doing regularly of small business owners. And you've only got um, 30% of businesses back to normal revenues right now. Um, so, you know, we're, we're six months in, over six months into this pandemic. And to have only 30% back to normal revenue, that's quite worrying. Only 40% are back to normal staff. 
Um, so the situation for a lot of small businesses out there is still um, very, very, very difficult. And as you just mentioned, some of them are making really tough decisions about the future of their businesses and whether or not to continue to try and make a go of it or to close up shop. And do we know the size of some of these businesses that are struggling or is it all sizes? It's all sizes. Um, You know, it's really more a sector breakdown when you look at who are really uh, struggling. Those businesses that are still um, shut down or largely shut down. Obviously, hotels, hospitality is a sector. Restaurants are are really in worse shape on average um, than other businesses. Talk to a lot of business owners in the event planning space. Mm And those businesses are in tough shape. I mean, you know, there was no wedding season to speak of um, this year. And, uh, you know, many of them had already accepted bookings. And so next year is going to be tough, too, even if things are a little bit more uh, normal. So, you know, those are the businesses that are really, really struggling. So what advice do you have for them at this point? Like, what should they be doing? Well, I mean... You know, it's we actually do weekly webinars where we're helping businesses navigate the programs, obviously seeing what support is available. And that in and of itself can be a daunting task just because the, you know, the paperwork and, and, and kind of figuring out what what's going to work for your businesses. The wage subsidy has been great for some businesses who are um, eligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some regional um, relief grants that have helped some businesses. Um, the Canada Emergency um, Business, that uh, account that loan, that forgivable loan has been helpful. But of course, that those funds are, 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 are wearing a little bit thin. Um, but the one we're really worried about is, is the rent relief. And, uh, you know, we're pushing governments as hard as we can. And of course, we encourage business owners, talk to your MP, talk to your MLA. You often think that that doesn't make a difference, but, um, but it does. And so those are things that, that uh, you can do. And then look carefully at your cash flow is the other thing we're saying. And, you know, in some cases, um, uh, you know, getting some, some professionals to help you uh, look at that if you're facing a tough, tough decision about whether to wind down your business can be um, important. Oh, and heartbreaking, too. I would imagine having to do that. Laura, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That is Laura Jones, Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And yeah, that's just a sort of snapshot of what so many businesses across the country are facing right now. The end of the commercial rent relief program means no more rent subsidies for those who had been in that program. And so with the revenue reductions that these businesses are going through, the next month or so is going to decide whether a lot of these businesses can actually just stay open. Well, 13 different mayors around BC signed on to a blueprint yesterday. They call it the Blueprint for BC's Urban Future. And essentially, it was a document outlining what these 13 mayors want to see the three major party leaders consider in an effort to tackle homelessness. I mean, this is the time to get, right, provincial politicians' attention. It is during an election campaign. So one of the signatories to that is Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh, who joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Nice to be here. So what was the purpose of this? What is the big issue you want to see dealt with? Well, there are, there are four big issues, um, mental health, substance abuse and treatment, affordable housing, uh, public transit, and obviously uh, all of this gets back to the usual uh, a new fiscal relationship. Uh, cities are seeing themselves burdened by expectations of their citizens and senior governments uh, where their physical, fiscal resources simply don't exist. We don't have the ability to tax income or all kinds of things, and I'm not suggesting we want that, 
but nevertheless, that's an issue. But the, the, the first issue, of course, is mental health, substance use, and treatment. We have a, you, you referred to it as homelessness, and yes, it's part of that great broad spectrum of people who range from what I will call the simply poor who can't afford or find housing, all the way to the severe mental health addiction issue cases where there's brain injury involved. And what I think is obvious to most of us, in lack of capacity to look after themselves or care for themselves or be safe. And what has that been like in Nanaimo? What have you seen there? Uh, it's been grim. I think uh, most of your listeners were aware of our tent city two years ago, which was, was broken mm-hmm. up as a result of a court application, just literally the time this new council and I was, were sworn in. Uh, we have seen a dramatic increase in our homeless population in the last few years. Uh, it's not good getting better. Uh, the province has stepped up with a lot of housing, in fairness, a lot of it uh, near completion or, or in construction, and uh, and other units on on the on the planning side, but uh, those 880 units um, are not going to deal with the folks who are in really difficult circumstances. And I've used the phrase over and over again. I guess it's the old messaging trick you learn in provincial politics. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, that they're they're living in hell on the streets, and they're making it hell for a lot of people around them. So how do we fix that? I mean, it seems like a similar story that we hear in so many communities, but what do you think are some of the immediate steps that could be taken to make a difference? Uh, Look, uh, better sheltering facilities would certainly help, but the province has stepped up with the Navigation Centre in Nanaimo, the second one, the first announced in Vancouver, where hopefully you'll uh, be able to guide people fairly quickly into the kind of resources they need. But uh, candidly, we don't have the resources uh, you know, we, we don't have enough detox beds, we don't have enough housing, we don't have enough mental health workers, we don't have enough psychiatrists, for heaven's sakes, by any stretch. Uh, we don't have enough qualified people to provide that kind of support. Uh, bec- uh, and I say this from a place of compassion. A number of these individuals are very difficult to deal with, the ones on the extreme side. Uh, they have been in public or supportive housing before, their behaviors are such, the, the, the brain injury is such that they have not been able to sustain uh, that. I mean, we know in Victoria where there have been a number of hotel and motel rooms uh, purchased by the province mm-hmm. uh, that there are issues there. And, and, and let's, let's stop pretending that just housing on its own is helpful. You know, it was one of the four pillars approach, but it was one of four pillars. It wasn't the pillar. I think many of us are, are realizing now that in the, as I say, what I call the extreme cases, um, merely housing, even with some basic supports, is, is, not going to, is not going to make it better for some folks. Do you think also perhaps that, you know, before, as you mentioned, that these were people who functioned all right, right? With a few light supports, they were, they were able to function the community. But given what we've seen happen over the past year, has a lot of that just kind of fallen by the wayside? Now we're talking about some acute problems, acute care. Um, I, I wouldn't say some of them. I mean, obviously people do. I mean, there are many people. I mean, the, the people who fall into that catch-all phrase, homelessness, range from, you know, the as I would say, the 67-year-old senior single female who has been renovicted out of an apartment and now can't afford to something in the private marketplace, uh, and and for whom the public housing isn't built yet. 
all the way to, as I say, somebody who's maybe been brought back with naloxone several times, who's severely brain injured, uh, who literally wanders the streets scavenging um, with no prospect of any improvement ever. What are you going to do with someone like that? Are you just going to let them carry on in the street until the overdose finally kills them? Because in a practical way, by not taking these steps, that's really what you're doing. And I think we need to step up and be prepared to acknowledge that. Either we're going to fix this or we're going to ignore it. But I can tell you, it is not going to get better on its own. The private sector can't provide the housing. The private sector doesn't deliver those the supports that are necessary for a whole range of people and their issues. It has to be government. And this collective cry from 13 of us is certainly, uh, I hope, a wake-up call uh, for other mayors in British Columbia, and but most particularly provincial and, and federal politicians, that we're serious, we need something, it has to be done, We've addressed the pandemic with billions and billions of dollars without any hesitation. Government's running up deficits everywhere without a moment's hesitation. And yet this ongoing and increasingly severe problem on our streets continues to plague every community in this province of any size. Mayor Krogh, thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you. I appreciate you bringing this up and good interview with Margaret Atwood at the UBCM. Oh, <laughs> thank you for that. She was great, wasn't she? She was yes, a real public intellectual. Oh, she was. Yes. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> that is Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. He's talking about the UBCM convention. I did have a chance to have an hour long chat with Margaret Atwood. I was so incredibly nervous because, yes, we are talking about Margaret Atwood there, but she was absolutely lovely. So we were just talking with Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh about how he and a dozen other mayors from around B.C. Uh, put their names to a letter to the political candidates, to the three-party leaders, because they would like to see some of these political hopefuls address the issues surrounding their communities involving homelessness, mental health, addiction support, and all of that. We wanted to get some more context on this. So we want let's get some perspective of someone who has some deep experience on the ground dealing with these issues. So joining us now is Jeremy Hunka with Union Gospel Mission. Jeremy, good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are things at Union Gospel Mission these days? I know that the kind of physical distancing and all of that has been a huge challenge lately. Oh, it's been, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not going to try and tell you anything other than it's been extremely difficult for many different people. Um, we've, we're seeing more people coming to us for help. We're seeing um, a, a feeling of stress and strife, and we're seeing more people die of overdose deaths. We're seeing um, more visible homeless. We're seeing just an incredible amount of uh, anxiety related to the pandemic on top of every other crisis people are dealing with. It hasn't been easy. We are seeing hope and success, but we, uh, but it hasn't been easy. So we thought before it was bad. Now it's even worse. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt. Uh, when the pandemic struck, it was almost like a lightning strike. And within a few, just within almost overnight, it felt like um, things had changed. Um, and they are. Um, and, and you see it noticeably in our cities. But when you talk to people one-on-one, that's when you feel it the most because you look them in the eye and they're talking about how, um, you know, I didn't need to worry about meals beforehand. Now I do. I didn't need to worry about um, not feeling safe um, you know, because I had a place to stay. And now I'm outside and I don't have a place. No, it's, it's extremely trying on people. 
Do you think, like, the, we hear a lot about this in the news, Jeremy, right? And it must be difficult for you as well, because people talk about public safety and the crime they're concerned about and the tents that they see, but you're dealing with it with a very different perspective, aren't you? You're dealing with one-on-one. You're seeing the issues that, that have brought people to this place. Absolutely. And more, even more so, you're seeing the humanity. You're seeing the human being who's struggling and suffering, who feels in that moment like they've lost all hope, and your heart kind of falls out of your chest. And that's when you realize that these aren't just statistics, that it's not a kind of nebulous problem. It's something that is having a deep and lasting impact on people right now. We know that people can get out of it. We know because we end homelessness every week at Union Gospel Mission and other places do as well. It takes an extreme amount of work, an extreme amount of support from many different places. But we know it happens. It's just not happening nearly fast enough, and it's not even close to keeping up with uh, how many people are falling into homelessness. But one thing I, I want people to realize that these are people's lives, and then it costs much more not to act. Yes, it's expensive. Housing is expensive. Supports for things like mental health and addiction, those are expensive. But study after study after study shows that if you do not address this head on up front, then the costs, not just the terrible human toll and the suffering, but the costs to taxpayers for other things like uh, like health supports and emergency room visits and all those types of things are way higher Mm -hmm. than they would be if we addressed it up front. We need to do it and we need to do it now. This is our shot. So what did you think then about these 13 mayors getting together to try to get the attention during the campaign? Love that these mayors are banding together and calling for this. Love that they're putting homelessness, rightfully so, at the very top of the priority list during the pandemic because it's, the pandemic is having a disproportionate toll on a certain group of people who are, you know, really struggling. Um, I love that it's um, being looked at in a comprehensive way, that it's they're looking at it not just in terms of, say, just housing, but looking at supportive housing, looking at addiction supports, looking at mental health supports and transit. I mean, there's all these things are interconnected. It's a hugely complex thing. I'm glad that it's being looked at at such a large and comprehensive level. And we hope that every person running for in the provincial election is, is has their ears wide open and wants to tackle this um, even more so than before, because we really need to do that. And I hope that everybody on the federal level as well is listening with mm-hmm. ears wide open because we're not seeing enough action uh, overall in our region. All right, Jeremy, thank you for your time on this. You bet. Thanks, Simi. That's Jeremy Hunka, communications manager with Union Gospel Mission. And as you can tell, very passionate on this subject. Uh, we're not talking about it enough, he said, in terms of looking at it through the human lens of what's happened to these people to have them end up in that space. And he's glad that there's an attempt now to at least put it on the public agenda during the election campaign. Higher pay for workers, individual rooms for residents, and... A whole pile of money. That is what we heard yesterday from NDP leader John Horgan, what the party is promising for senior care if the party is re-elected. So we wanted to break down what that promise means for long-term care for your loved one or for you if this is an option for you as you get older. Joining us now is Dan Levitt. He teaches long-term care administration at Simon Fraser University, also the executive director of Tabor Village. Dan, thanks for being with us. Great to be here, Sammy. So uh, this is the first time that I can remember, Dan, that we've seen you know, long-term senior care get such a high profile 
in a provincial election campaign before. How about you? Yeah, definitely. It, it's been about 20 years since uh, the BC Liberals promised their 5,000 beds. And uh, when you start breaking down the numbers of this promise from the NDP of $1.4 billion, um, if you were to look at the, each bed um, that they're replacing, costing approximately $300,000 in construction costs, it would almost get to 5,000 beds. Um, my math gives me about uh, 4,500 beds. So this is great news. Um, however, it, when I read the, the press release and the great article by Rob Shaw in the Vancouver Sun, um, my math tells me that this is um, replacement beds versus new beds. Okay, what does that mean then? So it means that um, the, there are numerous um, beds in our province. There's approximately 27,000 beds in total. And the, the owned and operated sites, these are the health authority sites that they're referring to in this 10-year commitment for $1.4 billion, that they're going to replace the multi-bed rooms. So this means about 23% of all those health authority beds um, equals 2,000 beds would be replaced. That would still be another uh, 2,600 beds left over. So if you did all of the beds in the province that are multi-beds, this would be some of the private um, uh, nursing homes and some of the nonprofits like Tabor. Um, right. We don't really have multi-beds in our place, but that would be another 3,200 beds, leaving about 1,400 beds um, left over for either replacement. So th- this is not going to solve that, that aging demographic um, where um, we're having the graying the population and more need for care in the future. So this is like a baby step, not a big step. I, I think so. I mean, I applaud the, um, the current government for, for putting this forward. I know the, the Greens will be doing something, I think, a little more dramatic today, as, and I'm sure the Liberals will be coming up with something. Um, but we need to see, um, I think, a much greater um, movement in terms of adding more beds. I guess we also wonder, Dan, like, if not now, then when, right? Well, when we know that long-term care is kind of on the minds, and we've been talking about it for months now. Absolutely. And I think that spotlight is, is needed. It's a tragedy what's happened in our care homes across the country with um, 80% of all the deaths happening um, in, in nursing homes. But what we need to do is just look at all those reports that are out there. A Conference Board of Canada, for example, in 2017 um, said if nothing changes right now to the, you know, the definition of the role of long-term care in society and in the system, we're, we need to double our beds. And that was in 2015. So we have 10 years, basically. To your point, we have to plan it out. And I think yeah. the NDP got it right in terms of how long it takes to do this. However, um, we're going to fall short of what's needed. We need to have about 50,000 beds. And my math would, would uh, equal, if these were new beds, which they're not, if they were new beds, it'd be about 30,000. So we, we're short 20,000 beds. Oh, that's a lot. Uh, yes. But, you know, Dan, it seems like we're at this critical time right now for long-term care because we're talking so much about it and there's a lot of focus on it. Are, are we doing enough, even the individual rooms for residents and, and higher pay for workers? Are those the kinds of things that you think will also make a difference? A huge difference. So um, the, the the workers in long-term care, they're the heroes. They are the backbone. Yes. Uh, they, they basically become the family members because of restrictions um, for visitation during COVID-19. They become family members. They be, there's a huge burden, and as well, no volunteers. Um, they are just incredible people, and they have been underpaid. And now we're paying them a proper wage, and they deserve that. Um, so I think that piece, um, I think they've certainly got right here. And, and Seniors deserve to have a private um, bed. I think we have to look at where those beds are located. Um, what's that living environment like? Is it that sort of traditional nursing home institution, or does it feel much more like their house? I think we've got to change that, look more at things like the Dementia Village concept. There's one in Langley, there's one being built in Comox, and one's planned for the St. Vincent site in Vancouver. And then looking at how our, 
how our communities and our villages, our cities, dementia-friendly or age-friendly. And I do think we have to also reinvest in other kinds of, um, of uh, facilities like assisted living. We, that's a great option for seniors. Right. We need more of that as well. It sounds like we need a lot more of everything, though, right? Because not everybody's going to want to, as you said, go into a long-term care home. Maybe they want to stay home, or maybe somebody who wants to move them into their home, like a, a child, you know, they just want help to have their parent at home. Like, do we have all of those supports in place? Um, I don't think we have all of them, but I think this is one of the, the, the things that, when I, when I read the, uh, the press release from the NDP, one of the things they talked about was uh, the accountability of, of um, reporting, for, especially for private operators and um, making sure the public dollars go to where they should. I think that's very important. That's accountability. It also means more regulations and more reports. We've hired more people to, to um, account for that. So what I'd like to see is a, a deregulation in terms of what you refer to. There, some of those options should be available. Yeah. And some of that money, I believe, should flow to the people who, who uh, need those services. And those of us, perhaps, who can pay more, um, if we could introduce more money into the system, as they've done in Australia with a bond program, we could um, not only rely on government funding for the capital costs, but some of us could um, buy a, a bond that would um, allow for us to rebuild those, those care homes. And those people who can't afford that, um, those who can't afford, pay a little bit more so that everyone has um, a, a better place to live. So it sounds like then, Dan, this was just a small step. You need to hear some more from some political parties. I'd be very excited to hear more, and um, one of the challenges is is uh, how much of the budget is being allocated to seniors and to older adults, especially today being International Day of Older Persons. Um, I'd love to see um, more options and perhaps a loosening of the restricted nature of, of rebuilding and giving um, nonprofits, for example, Tabor. We've done a, a capital um, campaign. We have an $11 million campaign going on. We are at $5 million. We're basically bringing that to the table, our land, and uh, we're not able to get a green light because um, how how the the system is controlled, if you will, by a central government. We'd like to see um, that being released right. and seeing proposals being con- considered that would get these old, outdated nursing homes rebuilt. All right, Dan, thank you so much for the talk today. Pleasure, Simi. Dan Levitt, who teaches long-term care administration at Simon Fraser University, also executive director at Tabor Village, talking about the NDP's plan, which John Horgan announced yesterday to help out with long-term care homes, essentially higher pay for the workers, individual rooms for residents, kind of getting rid of those multi-use rooms, and more money injected into the system. But as Dan said, yeah, that's great, but we need even more to deal with what is ahead of us. It seems like the mayor is more interested in making headlines than in making homes, um, as he's branded it. That is Vancouver NPA Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young speaking with our Jill Bennett here on 980 CKNW. She was one of the councillors opposed to a housing pilot project plan that Mayor Kennedy Stewart had put forward a couple of weeks ago. Well, that plan got shut down at council this week. So to talk more about what happened, uh, joining us now is Kennedy Stewart, the Mayor of Vancouver. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. So what did happen? You must be disappointed. Yeah, I'm really upset, and like I've lost lots of votes in the in the past. But this, is, I'm just thinking of the folks who can't afford homes in the city, and we had a chance to move ahead with a, a very modest pilot project that would really uh, begin to, I think, crack the walnut of of getting working people into homes they can afford to buy. Uh, but uh, the MPA, led by Councillor Kirby Young and Councillor Hardwick, uh, shut it down and sent it into oblivion. And why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, 
I can't kind of get in the headspace there of, of folks. Uh, you know, we had a vote on council. We had a chance to move ahead, I think, with a very good pilot project. You know, but instead, the MPA really decided to protect the status quo, which is, you know, we have 68,000 uh, single-family home lots in the city. About 80% of the residential uh, neighborhoods are zoned for that. And uh, who can buy those? Certainly not firefighters or nurses or teachers or small business owners. Nobody can afford a home for, you know, a million and a half dollars. So this would... This pilot program would have allowed us to experiment in all neighborhoods across the city to, for uh, to see if we could uh, significantly drop the price of home ownership, but it was kiboshed by the MPA. Yeah, and what do you think, though, when you hear Councillor Kirby Young say something like what we just heard her say there, that she criticizes kind of your motives on that? Well, I mean, that's a pretty constant thing on, on council, and you just kind of put up with it. But I think Vancouverites know I'm delivering. I mean, a lot of my work has been to secure uh, funding from the federal and provincial governments. And, you know, and I do that on my own. I go out and talk to the ministers and prime minister, premier, and kind of project what Vancouver needs and and, uh, really pitch them ideas and then come back with the funding. So I've really secured about a half a billion dollars for the city already, uh, most of it into affordable housing, uh, most of it into uh, housing for those who are most vulnerable, but also things like uh, childcare. I mean, the very first uh, thing I secured for the city was a $33 million investment from the provincial government in childcare spaces. So I feel like on that side of my job, I'm doing a good one. But uh, in terms of council, it's just delay, delay, delay. And it happened again last night. Uh, there's been a piece of land that's been vacant since 1998 uh, at the north side of the Granville Bridge. Staff have been working with a developer for years uh, to build a, uh, a new tower there, but what was included was 152 units of social housing, $66 million worth of social housing, and the MPA tried to delay that again. Uh, so, you know, you're kind of seeing a pattern here where the MPA just doesn't want to get stuff done. They don't want to make the tough decisions. And it's easy to point the finger at the mayor, uh, but it's really they have to look at themselves. And what happened here? Because I think, Mayor Stewart, a lot of people felt like having a diversity of parties on council would be a good thing because people would work together. And yet it seems like the opposite has happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are parties uh, on council. It's not like other uh, other cities across Canada where they're independents. I mean, these are these are political parties with political motivations. And really, the NPA is in, in total internal turmoil. Uh, you know, we had uh, Ken Sim, who ran against me in the last election. He's left the NPA and said he's going to run, form his own party. Uh, we had Councillor Bly, who uh, was really upset about the uh, directors of the NPA who are accused of uh, basically be, uh, you know, promoting uh, homophobic hate. Uh, she's left the party. Um, and so, you know, and, there, and instead of getting stuff done on council, the MPA just wanted to delay everything. And thank goodness, you know, a lot of the other councillors don't see it that way and are, for example, past that uh, very, very important project last night at council. So how do you approach this and moving forward? Like, what is council going to be able to get done? And are you going to change maybe how you approach this? Like, what happens now? Well, I don't think I can change. In fact, I think I just have to keep bringing things to council for council to make decisions on. So, for example, you know, we've got a homeless problem in the city, and I called a special council an emergency meeting about a plan for uh, Strathcona Park and for, uh, you know, the rest of the city where we're seeing increasing homelessness, say, in the West End and Yale Town. 
so, uh, you know, we have a report coming back to council tomorrow, and we'll have to make some tough decisions on what we're going to do. Uh, and if we can't get help from the senior levels of government, then we're going to have to put some money into it ourselves. And, uh, and that will be another tough decision that I hope the MPA doesn't try to dodge, and I hope they actually stand up for the city. Mayor Stewart, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Kennedy Stewart, Mayor of Vancouver, talking about a disappointment that his housing proposal that he put forward a few weeks ago did not make it through council, at least not in the form uh, that was originally proposed. Uh, And lots of shots going back and forth between some members of council and the mayor there, as you heard.